<clears throat> as we begin our study, and really before we start, let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that by the power of your Holy Spirit opening our eyes to see our great need and Christ's great worth and the glory of the gospel that we can come together and stand side by side with other blood-bought saints and be able to proclaim, I owe all to you, Jesus. I pray that that prayer would be the cry of our hearts, uh, not just on a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning, but on a, on a Monday afternoon and on a, a Thursday in the middle of the night and on a Saturday in the morning and at all times. Lord, your word says that apart from you, we can do nothing. But yet, with you, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And so as we come to your word, I pray that you would strengthen us, Lord Jesus, by your spirit, through your word, that you would open our eyes that we might see wonderful things wonderful things in your word. I pray, Lord, that you would help me to speak clearly and helpfully, and may you speak, Lord. May it be your voice in your word that touches our hearts and produces in us, that, that it produces fruit, that your word would find ready soil that would produce fruit 50-fold, 100-fold for your glory. We thank you for the privilege that we have to get to sit here and to read and think about your word in our own language. Thank you for the treasure of your word. Thank you for the treasure of the church, Father, and thank you for the treasure of your beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and it is in his name that I pray these things. Amen. Well, it is a joy to get to be with you all again to lead us in our study of God's Word together this evening. Um, I know there are some new faces from the last time I had the opportunity to teach in here. So uh, for those of you who I haven't met, uh, my name is Jonathan Cooper, and uh, my wife Christine is the lovely one there on the front row waving her hand, Christine uh, and I, and uh, we've been serving in Roots together for six years now. And there, there have been ups and downs, but it has been a privilege and a joy to get to serve together and really to see how the Lord has worked in and through the students and the leaders in, in Roots over that time. Um, and for me personally, specifically, it's been an honor and a joy to get to bring God's word to you alongside my brother teachers over the years. Um, and, and as some of you already know, however, um, after thought and prayer, Christine and I will actually be um, not uprooted, but uh, transplanted, uh, if you will, um, out of roots, out of the college ministry in a few weeks. We'll be transitioning our, our ministry involvement. We're not dying, um, Lord willing. We are not leaving the church. We're not going out in protest or anything like that. Uh, but rather, we're shifting our ministry focus uh, just in the season of our life as we will be uh, wanting to, as we want to shepherd and care well for our three, soon to be four children out of the womb any day now. So if, uh, unless baby Quartus comes in, the, there's a story there, uh, unless baby Quartus comes in the next few minutes, uh, it'll be uh, just a few days from now. 
So we'll still be here at Countryside, uh, and Lord willing, as there's need and opportunity, I, I will hopefully get a chance to come back and, and teach as, uh, as often as I can, and Brandon will, will let me come back. So uh, Lord willing, you'll see us again um, before too long. Um, but I did want to just share that with y'all, and also just wanted to say a personal word of thanks from myself and from my family um, over the last several months. For those who haven't heard, uh, back in March, I had an emergency hospitalization due to a bleeding in my brain. And uh, since then, I've had multiple scans and two surgeries to repair a, a blood vessel malformation. Uh, and praise God, I'm doing well. I'm able to drive. I'm as normal as I probably will ever be. Um, for those of you who know me better, that you're like, yeah, well, and that, anyway, we won't go there. Uh, but I've been able to go back to work. I'm feeling really well. Um, I still have one more major procedure to go, but the Lord has just been so kind to us through uh, your prayers and just the love that the Lord has abundantly showed us as you and the church has abundantly loved us. You know, one of the greatest treasures of the Christian life is the brotherly and sisterly love that we have for each other. And uh, having been the recent recipient of a good dose of that, I think perhaps we feel that in a more poignant way um, than, than we do, or at least I feel that way, than I, I do when there's not as trying of times going on. Sometimes it's not until you're in the midst of a trial that you really see the precious gift that is the love of God and the care of God through the people of God, the church. It is so special. Uh, but our love for each other as Christians is actually something that should and does mark our lives at all times, not just in trial or adversity. And, and it's really the heart of love for each other as Christians that's at the core of the text that we come to in our study of Christ's farewell uh, discourse in John that we've been looking at through John 13 through 17. So please turn or tap in your Bibles to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Uh, most recently sun, on Sunday, Wes led us through a study of the first 11 verses of this chapter in which we saw a call for us as Christians to abide in Christ, to remain in Christ, to depend upon Christ, to rely upon Christ. We saw how as branches are to the vine, so we are dependent upon the continued connection to Christ for fruit-bearing, and for fruit-bearing that is word-dependent. We saw that it's Christ-produced, and ultimately it's God-glorifying. And then that passage in John 15, 1 through 11 ends with this picture of the Christian as one who abides or who remains in the love of the Father and the Son, one who keeps Christ's commandments and who is full of Christ's joy. Our passage tonight begins really with joy. Joy is sort of ringing in the background in verse 11 as we turn tonight to verses 12 through 17. In these verses, the focus of Christ's farewell words expands from his relationship to the believers. That's what we've really been focused on primarily. And it expands to believers' relationships to one another. And not only does Jesus give us the command to love one another, which we'll see there in verse 12, but really what we see here are four key aspects of the nature of what our love is to be. Really, Christ-like love is to be. 
In our passage, we see four key aspects of Christ-like love that really all point to one central idea at the heart of our text, which I think is this. It's that we as Christians, we, all of you who name the name of Christ in this room, we as Christians are called to sacrificially love one another because we share the gracious joy of friendship with Jesus Christ. So we as Christians are called to sacrificially love one another, but there's a reason for that. In this text, the reason for that is because we share a gracious joy of friendship with Jesus Christ. Christ-like love is sacrificial love done to one another because we share an amazingly, unbelievably gracious gift of getting to share in friendship with Jesus Christ. So if you're taking notes and you want to write down those four aspects that I mentioned, they will look at first the source of Christ-like love, the, then the extent of Christ-like love, then really what I think is the, the bulk of our passage, the motivation of Christ-like love, and finally we'll end by seeing the priority of Christ-like love. So if you want just four words, source, extent, motivation, priority. No alliteration, I'm sorry for those who are looking for that. So the source of Christ-like love, that's what we see beginning in verse 12 and really coming into our text from where we've been before. So look down in your copy of God's word to John 15, verse 12. Here we see the source of Christ-like love. Verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. This is my commandment. Jesus is here repeating an instruction he'd actually already given once before in another form in John 13, 34, and 35. There, the the focus was on the fact that our Christ-like love for one another is a identifying characteristic of what it just means to be a Christian. John 13, 34, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If you have love for one another. To, that's the verb form of the, the word agape in Greek, to agape one another, to, to love one another dearly, to have a dear love for one another. And this is a love that is mutual. It's not just these group of people have a love for this group of people, that the pastors need to love the people, which they do, and the shepherds need to love the flock, which they do, but we all need to love each other. And there's no exceptions to this. There's there's no one who is exempt either from needing to be on the receiving end of the love that we share for each other as Christians, and there is no one who's excluded or who's exempt from showing that love. We are each of us all to be loving one another without exception as Christians. And this is not optional. This is his commandment. This is a command, an instruction of our Lord and Master to us love one another, all of you, all of y'all, love each other. But where is the source? Where does this come from? Look at that in verse 12. This is my commandment. This is my commandment. Ultimately, this love for one another springs not just from the instruction for us to obey and to love one another, but from the person who is instructing us. It is from the very love that Christ has for his disciples. Look at the end of verse 12. As I have loved you. 
as I have loved you, just as I have loved you, in as much as I have loved you, in proportion to how I have loved you, even as I have loved you. Get the idea? That's how you are to love one another. And here, we're really tying in what's come before us in the immediately preceding words of Jesus. Look back at verse 9 in John 15. Verse 9, he says, Just as the Father has loved me, Jesus says, I have also loved you. That is amazing. And we could spend our whole time just thinking about that phrase. This is not small love. This is not human love. This is divine Trinitarian love. Jesus, Christian, loves you as the Father loves him. This is amazing. And then in response to that, how are we supposed to to respond to that? Look there at the next part there. It says, I have loved you. Abide in my love. We are to be abiding or remaining in the love of Christ. And how do we do this? We we abide in his love. Verse 10 goes on to say, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So here we are not earning God's love. The Son does not earn the love of the Father through his obedience, but rather he demonstrates the love that he has for the Father, and the Father has for the Son, as, as Jesus demonstrated his love for the Father through his obedience, we demonstrate our abiding, remaining in the love of Christ through our obedience. I can tell, just like I can tell that, that Christ loved the Father because of how he followed the Father's commands, I can tell, Christian, you can tell if I truly love Jesus by if I am seeking to and desiring and endeavoring to follow Christ's commands. And if I'm not, there should be a seriously huge question about if my profession of love for Jesus is in actuality a real love for Jesus. And then what's the outcome of all of this relationship of love? Verse 11, these things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be, may be made full. That's the love with which he loved us, and we are to then, with joyous uh, obedience, respond to and enjoy the love of Christ for us. The source of our Christ-like love for one another, then, is the love of Christ for us. That's where it comes from. And as we are filled with that love, as we're filled with our knowledge of it, it should then overflow to others. We are full of the joy and the wonder of being the recipients of God's love. And that can't but help overflow to those around us. That's the source of this Christ-like love. But, but just how far does this love overflow? What is the extent of, Christ's, of Christ-like love for one another? Where where are the boundaries of that? Are there boundaries for that? And that leads us to a second key aspect of Christ-like love that we see in our passage. Number two, this is the extent of Christ-like love, the extent of Christ-like love. Jesus has already demonstrated some of the extent of this. He says that you are to love one another as I have loved you. 
Think about what that would then have looked like up to this point in the scripture. Before you get to verse 13, stopping at verse 12, how had Christ loved them? Maybe different ways you could answer that, but some things that came to my mind, he, he shared his life with them. He allowed them to follow him around day in, day out. Peter's always there. Every time Jesus wakes up, Peter is there. Every time Jesus wakes up, Judas is there. Every time Jesus wakes up, Thaddeus is there. They're all there all the time. He's sharing his life with them for days and days and days. He taught them. He provided for them. And he even served them. I mean, had not even moments before our passage tonight girded the towel around his waist and performed the act of the lowly servant and washed his disciples' feet? We've already seen to one one degree an extent of our love for one another, of Christ-like love for one another, and that's that we should be, as we saw in John 13, we should be willing and ready to perform even the most menial, humble acts of service to one another. In one sense, there's no act of service too lowly that's outside the extent of our love that we should have for one another. So, all the way down to washing somebody's dirty, smelly, mucky feet. But what about an upper limit? What is the highest extent of love? How, sh- how far should our love be willing to go for one another? And that's what we see in verse 13. Words that I'm sure many of you could probably recite by heart. Verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. That is such a beautiful, beautiful verse. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. What a beautiful, precious picture of love. Greater love has no one than this. This is the the pinnacle or the greatest expression of love. And in this verse, we see that the kind of love, the kind of love to which Jesus calls his disciples is self-sacrificing love. Love that is willing to even lay down one's life for their friends, for his friends or for her friends. And that word friends there, that's not just somebody that you know. The way we use the word friends, it, it could be everything from your best friend of 20 years all the way up to somebody that you just connected with online two minutes ago. And they're both friends. But here, this word friends, this is is um, philos. This is a dear one, someone that you love. The idea of love for this other person is there in the very word itself. This is someone that you have a relationship of love, a fondness for this person. And, And we all kind of know this, that there's a certain people that we would say, they're our friends. Yeah, they're my friends. I'm friendly toward them. We're friends. But then there's some people that are your friends. And you know those people and you treasure those people. And you thank God for those people. And just as a side note, um, friends, (laughs) treasure your friendships. You know, this is a a unique stage of life. And for many of you, maybe you're still at home. And uh, I just, this is not the main point of this passage, but just want to encourage you to to love your friends. You know, this passage is focused on, on us loving other Christians, but but your friends are, are there, and they are a gift to you, and uh, thank the Lord for them. Okay. Sorry, that was for free. 
So friends, we know those are the ones that we have love for. So then what is the greatest expression of love that I could have for you is to lay down my very life for my friend. And the disciples may have agreed to this. They may have heard this. I don't know what they thought, but maybe they thought, wow, that is, yeah, that is really profound and true. I don't know what they thought. This, this praiseworthiness of loving your friends so much that you'd be willing to lay your life down. A commentary, a commentary I looked at mentioned that this idea is found in, in Aristotle and in Plato, and it, it really fits within the Old Testament command to love your neighbor as yourself. And so that might be just sort of the extreme application of that. And, and we can probably, many of us can think of movies or books or accounts from history of great self-sacrifice, and just highlighting the nobility of that kind of sacrificial love. But what does it mean then if we are to love each other, that, that if we really loved each other, we'd be dying for each other all the time? I mean, there's not a Christian ordinance of like life-saving or bullet-taking that's like a, a Christian virtue. That, that's not really what's going on here. Rather, this is showing us where, that there is no upper limit to the extent of our Christ-like love for one another. Uh, Christine reminded me of something that Pastor Tom said to us in our premarital counseling, that uh, sometimes, you know, a couple in love, probably the guy would say something like this, you know, would say, I'm, I'll die for you. And there's songs written about this, and it's probably a whole genre, subgenre than country western music that, that it would have that kind of sentiment and just that great love, and I'll go anywhere and do anything for you. I'd walk 500 miles, etc. And but they aren't willing to take out the trash. We think about that, that we might say we might be willing to do great feats of, of love for one another, but when it comes to the small things, the everyday things. Yeah, not so much. Not so much. But really we see in our text today that the extent of Christ-like love is not to have bounds like that. That, okay, these expressions of love where I can show my love for you, these are in, but these are out. Or I'll serve you and love you up to this point, but don't ask of me this. That's, there's, there's to be none of that. From washing feet to laying down your life for someone. That's the extent that our love should have. But is Jesus just giving kind of a hypothetical, kind of noble example to try to inspire his disciples to love one another? Just the very nobility and greatness and awesomeness of this sacrificial love, that'll do it. We just need to remember that greater love is no man than this, and he lays down his life for his friends and go love each other. The, the text doesn't end there. Instead, Jesus goes on to show us the what's the, the third key aspect of Christ-like love in this passage, and that is that, that Jesus gives us the motivation for Christ-like love. And it's perhaps a motivation that we don't often think about. I don't often think about the motivation that Jesus gives them here. Since the, the third key aspect of Christ-like love is the, the motivation for Christ-like love. Look there in verse 14, just the beginning part of verse 14. Uh, let's go back into it from verse 13. Greater love is no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. You are my friends. Quite simply, the motivation Jesus gives us here in the verses that follow, the motivation is the joyous and gracious truth that we, Christian, are Jesus' friends. And he loves his friends. 
and he wants them to love one another. I wonder if this would have been surprising. I wonder if this would have been surprising to the disciples. Yes, 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 greater love has no man than this. He lays down his life for my friends. You are my friends. Don't know that in the moment any of them put two and two together and realized what Jesus was saying about what he was about to do nearly hours away from this statement that he was about to lay down his life for them. You know, the idea of of us being Jesus's friends. Jesus had used the term friends before on a couple of occasions. Uh, John 11, Lazarus is referred to as Jesus' friend. Uh, Luke 12, Jesus is addressing his hearers and says, my friends. In the Old Testament, uh, in Exodus 33, we see that God spoke to Moses just as a man speaks to his friend. Uh, James 2 tells us that Abraham was called a friend of God. So maybe they wouldn't have been shocked by being called Jesus' friends, but did they get that connection between greater love laying down their life for their friends and Jesus saying, you are my friends. Therefore, putting the pieces together, greater love I do not have for you than that I would lay down my life for you, my friends. This is amazing. This is amazing that that this is what we see in the love of Christ, that that he would call them his friend. But a really important question is, what does Jesus mean by that? You are my friends. Does he mean you are my friends in what sense? What does it mean to be Jesus' friend? Well, as we look at this verse and the remaining verses, we're going to see some different aspects of the nature of our friendship with Christ. What is friendship with Christ characterized by? What are the characteristics of friendship with Christ? First thing we see there is a characteristic of friendship with Christ is demonstration of that friendship by obedience to his word. That's the rest of verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Now maybe you hear that and you go, wait a minute. You're my friend if you do what I say? If I were to tell you that and say, Matthew, you're my friend, but only if you do what I tell you, what would you think of me? You would probably think of me, rightly, if it's me saying this, Jonathan, that I may be egotistical, manipulative, controlling, like, I'm the like, textbook example of who not to be your friend. There's my picture in that, in that context. Okay? So, is that what's happening here? Maybe reflexively we say, well, no, 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 because Jesus isn't like that. But, but why? Why is that? I think it's important to remember that our friendship with Christ, different from our friendships with one another, the, the fact that, that Jesus holds us to be his dear friends whom he loves, that fact cannot be separated from all the other ways in which we relate to Christ. He's, even though we are his friend, and that is amazing, he is still our creator. He is still our redeemer. He is still our sustainer, our teacher, our master, our king, our Lord. All the rest of our relationship, including our obligations to obey our Lord, are still in place. And uh, one, one picture of this I just thought of, I thought of earlier was, suppose a general of an army 
the, the supreme commander of the army were to befriend one of the sergeants under his command. And that sergeant and he, they rejoiced in their friendship, and it was great. But then that sergeant went and disregarded every order that the general gave him to do with his unit. W- would you say that that sergeant really was a friend, really loved the general as a friend, if he's going to disregard every order that he's obliged to do to his superior officer? I, I don't think so. If he would act in such an unfriendly and disrespectful way to just completely ignore the right relationship that they should have as, as superior and, and officer. And I think it's the same with us. You know, our status as friends with Jesus has no foundation in truth if our lives don't manifest that we continue to love and obey him as Lord. You can't have Jesus as your friend, just like you can't have Jesus as Savior without him also being your Lord. You can't have Jesus as friend without him also being your Savior and your Lord, etc. He is, as, uh, as uh, stealing the title from uh, Sinclair Ferguson, he is a whole Christ. You can't just have part of him. You have all of him. Uh, commentator uh, Hendrickson writes, clearly implied in these words of Jesus is the thought that Jesus is not satisfied with merely servile obedience. His friends are motivated by friendship when they do his beating. Obedience then is an expression of their love, close quote. And, and this obedience is not buying off Jesus's friendship. It's not like, you're my friends if you do what I say, so then if I do what he says, then I get to be his friend. That's not that's not how it works. As, uh, as one commentary states, um, this indicates not that obedience to Jesus earns his friendship, but that friendship with Jesus transforms his people with the result that they obey. When we think about it, we, we become like our friends sometimes. Maybe you have a friend and you've picked up some of their mannerisms or you've picked up some of their tastes in music or their tastes in food or you, you both like to go to the same place because the first one introduced you to it and you start to, to pick up some of those things and you, you seek to, to do the things that you know please your friend. How much more should we be ready and willing to demonstrate our love for our friend Jesus by heeding the instructions of our Lord? So our, our friendship with Christ is marked by, by demonstrations of that through obedience. Secondly, our friendship with Christ is characterized by an intimate communication with Christ or an, an intimacy of revelation with Jesus Christ. Look there at verse 15. It says, No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. No longer do I call you slaves. I, I, from, from my study, I, I didn't find a passage where Jesus expressly calls his disciples slaves. Uh, don't think there's one of those. But, but in a sense, all of humanity and even the, the people of God in the Old Testament, in a sense, were the, the servants, the slaves of the Lord, who's the king and master of all. But that's not how Jesus refers to us. Instead, he calls us his friends. But Why? Why does he call us friends and not slaves? Look, the, the middle part of the verse says, for, because slaves do not know what the master is doing. I mean, I think about it. This, the master is, doesn't owe the slave an explanation. In the a military analogy, the general doesn't owe the sergeant an explanation. If he says, move your unit from, from A to B, you say, yes, sir, and you do it. He doesn't have to understand the strategy or the plan. 
Slave doesn't have to understand why he has to stand at the door all day until his master comes back. The master says, stand here, and so you stand here. But friends know what their friends are doing. I mean, that's one of the joys of friendship. You know, before social media, the only way you knew what your friends were doing is if they told you what they were doing or you were spying on them through their window, which you shouldn't do even with the advent of social media. The only way you know what your friends are doing is if they tell you, if you have an intimate communication, a relationship of, of really re revelation. If you want to become my friend, the only way you get to know me, who I am, is if I tell you who I am, what I like, what I love, and that's just going to come out. Slaves don't enjoy that, but friends, friends do. Friends do. But not just do we know what Jesus is doing, we know what the Father is doing. He says, I no longer call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Jesus is, is laid out for them. The, the thoughts and the plans of the Father for the church, for his disciples, for his people, for his friends, he's laid it out for them. Yes, there's, there's still the, the, the work of revelation and the writing of the scripture is not complete. So in some sense, there is still more to tell. But all that the Father wanted the Son to tell the disciples up to this point, he didn't hide any of it from them. He revealed it to them. All that the Father wanted him to reveal, Jesus revealed. He shared that with him. The Father said, share this with your friends, in a sense. And he shared, this is what my Father has to tell you. Isn't this wonderful? The disciples, we Christian, we know what the Father is doing in the revealed word of God, and that is a treasure that we all share. Notice that those words there of you, my friends, I've made known to you. Throughout this passage, the word you is plural. In our vernacular, just insert a y'all into there. I have made known to y'all. I've called y'all friends. We're all in this together. And why does he call them friends? Why do they have this title? Because he has revealed the Father's word to them. Jesus has revealed the Father to us. We can have and know the mind of the Father, the mind of Christ in the word incarnate and in the word inscripturated, if you want to use a big word, in the scriptures that we have and we get to read. So, the friendship that we have with Christ is marked by demonstrations of that through obedience. By It's characterized by our communication. Thirdly, and this is essential, our friendship with Christ is possible by his initiative. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. You did not choose me, but I chose you. We are friends with Jesus. Our friendship is demonstrated in our actions. We enjoy knowing the mind of God, but the choice to put us in this relationship was not ours initially or ultimately. We're not allowed. We, as human beings, are not entitled to have Jesus as our friend. And you're not just Jesus' friend merely because you say you are. Okay? You might have the Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt. We can talk about the reverence of that separately. But that doesn't make him your friend. He has to choose 
to be your friend before you can have him as your friend. Imagine walking up to a celebrity, fill in the blank who that is, and telling them, I'm your friend. I know everything about you. I've listened to all your stuff. I've watched all your movies. I've watched all your interviews on YouTube. I know everything about you. I know you better than your siblings know you. You're my friend. And they turn to you and go, who are you? You're not just their friend because you say you are. They, whoever that person is, celebrity, political figure, whoever it is, that person in high states, they're the ones who decide if you are their friend. How much more so is it with God? I mean, think about it. Why is it such a big deal for, some, for, for people to be like, you know, uh, XYZ, so-and-so, my cousin. Or, you know, I met so-and-so. Or one time, like, my neighbor's friends, a guy who does his pool, so his aunt, uh, she has a friend who lives in Cincinnati, and her grandson one time went to summer camp with the Jonas Brothers, you know? And, like, that's a big deal. Why? Why is it? It's a big deal to be friends with somebody who's well-known. That doesn't have, that doesn't even compare to how amazing it is that you can be the friend of Jesus Christ, the Lord of all. And we, we're so, I'm so, I, I don't think about that. And, and I hope that if, if nothing else comes from tonight, that you think about how amazing that is and what difference that should make, and it should make in your life. The fact that God's love and his relationship with us is his choice and initiative and not ours, ultimately, that is a consistent theme in Scripture. Yes, we have a responsibility in how God's sovereignty and human responsibility play out. Ask Pastor Tom after church on Sunday. That's a longer discussion, but the truth remains. We have responsibility to obey Christ's commands, and it is he who initiates salvation. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. This, this idea of God's electing, selecting, initiating, pursuing love goes all the way back to the Old Testament people of Israel. Deuteronomy 7, the Lord says that he does not love you, Israel, because of anything in you, but the Lord has loved you because he has loved you. And those are glorious truths that we should celebrate of God's choice of God's initiating love. But the point here is not primarily that we were enemies with God and, and he saved us, but that we are his friends and he called us to be his friends. And he's appointed us to then do something as his friends. So fourthly, our friendship with Christ is supposed to produce, it produces enduring fruitfulness. He says, I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. We're not just called friends. Like we just, we get to have a little card, punch the card, say, yes, I'm a friend. It's not some status marker. It's something just to put on your resume. No, we are his friends for a purpose. Jesus has made us and gathered us together as a group of friends to do something. And that doing of something is the bearing of fruit, as we've seen earlier in chapter 15. Fruit, spiritual fruit, produce that depends upon the life-giving nature of the vine that is Christ. It's, it's fruit that manifests and shows that we truly are his. That enduring produce of fruit shows that we really are his friends 
and we have his life and love at work in us. And notice, though, that it's not just appointed to bear fruit where they are, but he says, I have appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. Go and bear fruit. This is not just the mutual fruit society where we're all just like, hey, I've got some fruit, you got some fruit, this is a fruit club. That's not what this is. That's a weird picture. This is supposed to be an active friendship, not, not just a stagnating group together, but we're going out. Not just calling each other friends, but acting like it, showing it, showing the active work of the Spirit in our lives, in our relationships with one another, and we are to go. I can't help but think, when I think of the, the, the way that the word fruit, this picture of fruit bearing, don't forget what makes fruit, fruit. What makes fruit, fruit? I don't know, maybe you remember that one kid uh, who you asked what their favorite fruit was, and they say, tomato. And everyone goes, tomato is a vegetable. I go, actually, tomato is a fruit because the tomato has seeds. In many cases, a plant's fruit is the part of it that has the seed. The point of the fruit Yes, it's to produce uh, benefit and joy and nutrition to others. But for the plant, the job of the fruit is to make more plants. The job of the fruit is to utilize the natural distribution and fertilization services of the animals around it to spread that seed around so that new plants will grow. We are to produce fruit, but we are not just to stay here. We are to go and take the fruit, take the seed of the word and go together, together bearing fruit and fruit that will remain, that will abide. This is enduring, continual fruit. It's not an on, off, sometimes, like on Monday there's fruit, but on Saturday there's not. On Sunday there's fruit, but, but then on Thursday there's not. At camp there's fruit, but the rest of my life there's not. No, the, Jesus has purposed. It's part of the plan that we will produce fruit and that that fruit will abide. So part of what it means to be a friend of Christ is that that friendship with Christ produces enduring fruitfulness. And then lastly, what does friendship with Christ produce? This, This enduring fruitfulness, what does it lead to? What should it lead to? Number five, it should lead to confidence in prayer. Confidence in prayer. Uh, he, he appoints them that their fruit would remain so that, what? So that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. The emphasis is on the, I think here is on the personal action and answer of the Father. He doesn't just say it will be given to you. He doesn't say that I will give it to you, but that the Father himself will answer your prayers. That's, and this is just marked by love. It is the Father and the Son, as, as uh, Hendrickson points out, it's the Father and the love, uh, the Father and the Son loving each other, loving the believer, and all of that manifesting in fruit. There's that connection with the Son and with the Father. But that's only to the branch that is part of the vine. The, the promise of answered prayer is not made to a branch that's trying to bear fruit on its own or trying to bear fruit away from the vine. 
I mean, think about this. Here's, here's kind of the flow. So abiding fruit, that's evidence that you are connected to the vine. And if connected to the vine and depending on it, if you're abiding in Christ, then you should have confidence that God will answer your prayers. Confidence that God will actually hear our prayers that are asked according to his will, which we can know through his word. We don't have to guess what God's will is. We know what God's will is revealed to us in scripture. So we pray in accordance with the scriptures and we pray in Jesus' name. That means in accordance specifically with the person and work and character of Christ. And as we pray in that way, you can take it to the bank. God will hear and God will answer. Seven times, seven times in the upper room discourse, Jesus tells his disciples to ask, 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 ask of the Father, ask of me. Yes, it is true that we need to uh, beware of the excesses of, of name it and claim it and, and thinking that God's just going to do whatever you want, like he's your genie. We need to avoid that excess. That is wrong. But Christian, don't shrink back from going to the Father in prayer. I have been convicted of this recently, that even though I would say I love the Father and I trust the Father in my prayer life, I doubt that God will really do what's good for me. And I say that to my shame, but friend, the Father loves his Son and he loves his friends and he delights to hear and to answer those prayers that are made in this way. We are to have confidence as Christ's friends. The friendship with Christ should produce confidence. All these things are in place. Yes, Jesus is my friend and his Father cares what I have to say. That is unbelievable. Why should God listen to me? Because of Christ, my friend, who has made these promises to me. And all of this, all of this wonder of, of what Christ-like love should look like, what should motivate us for it, ends in verse 17 with number four, the fourth aspect, the priority for Christ-like love. The priority for Christ-like love. Look at verse 17, very simply. This I command you, says our Lord Jesus, this I command you, that you love one another. After all that he has said, he comes again to the central instruction of the text. Love one another, all y'all, Love one another. Think about it. Jesus is about to leave. This is his last discourse with his disciples, this long discourse before the cross, and he says this to them twice in so many verses that we've looked at with the extent and the motivation in between. Why? Why say it again, Jesus? And I think it is because of the priority of this Christ-like love that we are to have with one another. Jesus wants us to get the point, to hear him. I have small children, and I have to say things multiple times because they are not listening or they need to be reminded. We need to be reminded. We need to hear things twice. Love one another. And I think this points to the heart of Christ in this command. I do not want you to hear me in this lesson to give you the command, which it is a command, to love one another as just another thing to put on your checklist or your to-do list. Here's another thing I'm supposed to be doing that I'm not doing as well as I should. I don't think that's the heart of Christ here at all. He loves his disciples, and he wants them to love one another because he wants that love to be shared among them. 
there is a heart of love for each other. He wants them to take care of each other. Um, I'm actually reminded of some of the last words my grandmother spoke to me and my sister when the last time we went to visit her before she passed away. Her last words to us were, take care of one another and love one another. That was what was on her mind. And I think it's that kind of sentiment that's what's on our Lord's mind here. He wants us to love one another because he loves us. And our love should be joyous. This is not just a, I got to get up today. Okay, I got to do the laundry. I got to go to work. I got to love my other Christians. No, no. I get to go and see my fellow friends of Christ. We can refer to each other as friends of one another. Third John, John in his third epistle ends by saying, Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends in my name. That's how he referred to the believers there in that church, as his friends. We are Christian friends with one another and friends with Christ, and our friendship with Christ should motivate us to love one another. So what do we do with all of this? Just the last couple of things to think about. Firstly, all of the joy, all of the benefit, the fruit, the fellowship, the intimacy of relationship with Christ, the confidence in answered prayer, all of that is only for the true friends of Christ. And if you are not Christ's friends, then you are his enemy. There's not kind of a a neutral ground where you can just sort of like, he's not my friend, he's not my enemy. We have relationships with that. People fall into that category. You are either Christ's friend or you are his enemy. And if you are his enemy today, I just want to encourage you to come to Christ. Come and obey one of the first commands he ever gave, which is to repent and believe in the gospel, to repent of your sin, of walking in your way, of doing things the way you want, the way of defining how your own life should be run in opposition to God's decree, in your rebellion. Set that aside. Lay down your arms Throw it away. It's no benefit to you at all. It is only death and sadness and grief in opposition to God. Instead, come to Christ who offers to all who would come this kind of friendship to all who would trust in his name. Come to Christ. Come to this friend on his terms in response to his call in the gospel to come. Come to Christ. And for those of us who are in Christ, meditate on what it means to be a friend of Jesus, as he says here. What does that mean? Think about that some more. Rejoice in Christ's love for you. Jesus said, greater love is no one than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. Jesus, truly God and truly man, laid down his life for you, Christian. For you, and for you, for you, and for you, and for you. He laid down his life for me. And we need to stop and think about that. If that's true, and it is, what heart of love, what life of love and obedience should flow in response to that great, overflowing Niagara Falls of abundance, of love of God in Christ. And it is because of his love 
then, and this is really the key central application, love one another sacrificially. We've been looking at the heart. We've been looking at the, what Christ-like love looks like. We saw its, its source, and we saw its extent, and we saw the motivation we should have, and the, the priority of it. All of that's well and good, but if you're not heeding it, then you are missing the point. We are to love one another. John, I think, uh, I, I just have to think, is thinking about these words in the Upper Room Discourse as he writes in 1 John 3, 1 John three sixteen. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren, for each other. Does that mean we have to die for each other? No, John goes on to give an example in 1 John 3, 17. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us love with word or with tongue. Uh, excuse me. Let us love, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Don't just say you love your fellow Christians. Love your fellow Christians. Are you looking you know, he says, the one who sees his brother in need. How many, how many needs are there that we just don't see because we're not looking for them? And how many times do we see a need, but we, we wrongly close our heart against him? Don't do that. Pay attention to those needs that are shared in your small group. Look for ways that you can sacrificially love one another. Ask one another how they're doing in a way that you might find a way to sacrificially love them. Work together to do this. These are plural commands. Okay? We are all Christians. We are all Jesus' friends. We are all no longer just slaves. We've all been called. We've all been appointed to bear enduring fruit. The Lord has revealed himself to us all. The Father answers all of our prayers. We are all able to bear fruit. We all have fruit that remains. We all ask of the Father, and we are all recipients of his answer. Jesus laid down his life for us all. We also ought to love, lay down our lives for one another. Don't tolerate unloving actions among Christians. That person who is mocking other believers, confront them about that, in love about that. That person who is willing and able and has all of the ability to serve their fellow Christian and to say they do but they don't, come alongside them and talk to them, engage them in that. Love one another. Don't let anything divide you, Christian, from another Christian. We have an adversary who hates you. We have an adversary who hates this church. Don't listen. Don't be, be on your guard against all of the inroads that would seek to divide us. No, 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 no. No, I'm going to lay down my life for you. I'm going to lay down my time for you. I'm going to lay down my money for you. I'm going to lay down my energy for you. For you, because you are Jesus' friend, as am I. There would be nothing that would give me greater joy as we transition out of roots and we look back and see and we hear of what's happening, that we hear that the love of y'all for each other, through the power of the Holy Spirit and work through his word, grows that love. And that roots is the ministry of ministries in a sense. I'm selfish because I love you guys that this is the ministry that others in the church look to and go, they love one another. They love one another. They're friends in Christ with one another. May that mark us. May that mark all of our lives. 
I'll leave you with these words from, from a wonderful hymn called I Found a Friend. I found a friend, oh, such a friend. He loved me ere I knew him. He drew me with the cords of love, and thus he bound me to him. And round my heart still closely twine the ties that naught can sever. For I am his, and he is mine forever and forever. Let's pray. Our, our great Father, our King, our Lord, we thank you for your great love for us in Christ. I pray that you would work through your word, Holy Spirit, to produce in us overflowing love for you and for each other. Forgive us for how we have withheld love from one another, how we have not treated each other as the friends of Christ that we are. Thank you that your love for us, though our sins are many, your mercy is more. And we just thank you for the joyous opportunity that if you give us another day of life tomorrow, that we might in that day and in the days to come seek to love one another sacrificially with Christ-like love out of a heart of love and gratitude for you, our God and wonder of wonders, our friend. Pray for those here who have not yet become your friends. May they do so even tonight through coming to Christ. May you get all the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus now and forevermore. Amen.